This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information. Welcome to the Arden Labs podcast. This is Bill Kennedy. Our special guest today is Mark Thompson. Hey, Mark, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Where, where are you talking to us from? So I am in the Bay Area, so I'm right near San Francisco. Nice, nice, nice. Oh, my God, I haven't been, really, I haven't been almost anywhere for a couple of years now. I loved, San, I loved visiting San Francisco. I thought it was a fun place to, to visit. I don't know if I could have ever lived there. Did you grow up there? No, I actually grew up in Chicago on the south side. Nice. Okay. This podcast is about you. I want to kind of talk to you about, yeah, 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 this this podcast is about you. And um, it's a kind of about your journey through life and career. And so just a couple questions up front before we start, just to kind of set some, some time frames. Give everybody like the two minute elevator speech on what you're doing today. Where is Mark today? Mark? Well, myself, I'm a family <laughs> man who like lives uh, in uh, in California right now, working for Google as a senior developer relations engineer. And, you know, I'm just really focused on two things right now, like my family and then what I can do to just be a positive impact in the world around me and influence community. And I hopefully we could talk more about that. But, you know, that's where I am right now. I've been at Google for going on two years in June, and I'm just having a blast. I'm having a blast. This is the best time of my life so far. Tell me again, I, I, I don't know why I missed it, but what is your role again at Google, real quick? Sure, sure. Senior developer, relations engineer, working on Angular. Angular, okay. Front-end stuff. I'm like the worst front-end developer you've ever... In fact, I'm so bad, I'm not even allowed to talk to the designers over here at Arden, because that's how bad I am. So I'm always impressed with anybody that can do front-end anything. Like To me, it's harder engineering than back-end development. I, I don't know how people do it. One more question, and we're going to get rolling here. What? And I like to ask this question because I think time is important in terms of tech and kind of where you are. So what year did you graduate high school? Ooh, you want me to tell the streets what year I graduated? 1999. 99. Yeah. Yeah. I see. I graduated 87. So you can kind of get a sense of what the world was a little bit like back then, especially tech 99. So, you know, year 2000. And we, we have a general sense of, I think, where tech was. Okay. Brilliant. So 99 graduate. Okay. We got it. Good. So here's my favorite first question, Mark. My, my absolute favorite question. Think back in the time machine, go all the way back. And I, I want you to Kind of share with us that story of that first time you worked on a computer and got it to do something you wanted it to do, right? Like, not necessarily, it could have been in gaming, it could have been anything, but that first kind of memory you have of a computer. Okay, so for context, I grew up on the South Side. I was pretty, you know, poor, meaning that like we grew up on welfare and like Section 8, which is like a housing program to help people who can't afford housing afford housing. And so that was my background. But I remember telling my parents that I really desperately wanted a computer and I just kept begging and begging and begging. And 
now that I look back, I don't know how they managed this, but they managed to get me an IBM PS1. I don't know how they did it. How old were you or what grade were you in? Do you remember? I do remember. I remember being in sixth grade. Go, I was going from sixth to seventh grade around that time. And I just couldn't believe that they figured that out and they just got it to work. So here's what like got me so excited was, I guess my dad had taken some like programming courses at like a computer, I'm sorry, at a um, community college or something. I don't know where he had taken these courses, but he knew just a little bit about like the command line. And I remember him like teaching me how to like navigate the command line. And there were some pre-built game, uh, preloaded games. One was Commander Keen. And I remember playing Commander Keen on this computer. And that in my mind was just like amazing because I had a Nintendo, right? But I was playing a video game on a computer and just being able to type like CD into the directory where the game binary was loaded and being able to type it and get it to do something. That for me was everything because this computer didn't have Windows like 3.1 or anything. It didn't have any Windows. They had the proprietary uh, IBM software and you just had access to the command line and then whatever like preloaded after they wanted you to have access to. Yeah, I mean, we're talking 89 at that point, right? I mean, if you're 17, 18, when you graduate in 99 and you're, or you're in sixth or seventh grade, I put you at what really, I put you at about 12. Okay. so. So five years from there. So now I guess we're still talking 94, but um, so, uh, we'll do the math. But um, yeah, that's amazing. Now, your, 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 your father had some knowledge. Where, did, where do you think he got that? What was he? Do you feel like your parents were technical or your dad is technical in, in nature? Um, so he's like me where, or he was like me, he's passed since, but um he was like, well, I'm like him. And the fact that I picked up my ability to just see something that I wanted to learn and just taught myself like videography, right. And like work with cameras and lights. Like I never took a single class. I just figured it out by like learning and immersing myself in resources. And I think he was very crafty like that. Like he liked technology, but it was more like audio equipment was for him. Like, you know, turntables and like all this stuff, but he had just a, a touch of computer experience at the time. And he just remembered it. And I think he learned some of that because he did have a friend who was actually a programmer. Maybe his friend taught him, or maybe, like I said, he might've taken a class at a community college or something that might've helped him. Did you have siblings? Was this a computer you had to compete for? Or did you really get, was it your, like, talk to me a little bit about that. Was your, your dad trying to use it too? Like how much time did you get to really spend on that? Um, let's say during that junior high um, time. So let's put this into context. Remember, being on the computer was not cool, right? Nobody was interested in computers who weren't considered to be super nerds, right? Like that was way before people knew what the word developer is. Like now everybody you talk to knows the word developer. Like, oh, you make apps. Okay, on what phone, right? Like that's kind of like the con you know, their context of it. So I didn't have to talk, I didn't have to fight anybody to get access to this computer. I just what, so here's what was interesting. I became the like resource for everybody. Like, oh, Mark knows about computers. Help me type my paper. Help me print my resume. Help me do this thing. And this is before online at that point. So I wasn't really going online as much. It wasn't the free online. It was like America online, right? When you say everybody, was it your, your family or, or was it also friends? Oh, no, it was, was, it, it was family mostly. It was family. All right. Because mm -hmm. I have a lot of siblings. Oh, you have a lot of siblings. Okay. So then you were able to start using that computer to write reports and, and papers 
Um, where are you in the in the order of your siblings? Are you at the top? You're at the bottom? You're somewhere in the middle? I'm in the middle. I'm one of seven. All right. So I have tech, I have seven kids. So I just number them one, two, three, four. Because it's so which which number are you out of the seven? Oh, you're number sure, four. Sure, sure. Oh, four. Yeah. <laughs> you're number four. Yeah, four. Okay. All right. And so now you're helping all of your siblings with uh, with I guess you were using it as a typewriter at that point, right? Because it's not connected. To the internet. Did you have the the um, encyclopedia CDs and all that stuff? There was no CD-ROM drive in this. Uh, okay. So, what do you other than say the word processing? Are you trying to get into programming? Let's let's kind of move now, going into kind of high school. Sure, sure. I was going to say that I I didn't have the language that I have that we all have now about what I wanted to do, but I remember trying to open up a a blank screen. It was kind of like a, a nano type editor where it's just, you know, just kind of like from the terminal, right? And I remember typing in this bulleted or this numbered list, like turn on a computer, say good morning, ask me which game I want to play, launch game. I remember typing that as a kid because that's what I wanted my computer to do. And I was trying to like, like program a routine into the computer for it to do those things for me. And so now we could say that that was like, you know, a programming routine could have been considered even like early ideas about like artificial intelligence or like an assistant or something like that. But what ends up happening next is weird because I stopped taking computer stuff seriously as I get into high school. And it was because, because there were lots of girls in high school and lots of other peers, right? So I was so focused on trying to be cool and like trying to like get a girlfriend that it's just like, it stopped being my like number one thing to do. And plus I kind of maxed out what I knew how to do, right? Like I knew how to play games. I knew how to go to Radio Shack and search through their little bin of like three and a half, right? And then putting those games on my computer. But that was just the most I had learned. And I was like, all right. And the computer was old by this point, by the time I got to high school, right? Like the world had moved on. So I just had a very limited like ability with that computer at that point. So when you're, when you get into high school, are you, I love talking about this kind of, like, are you, are you into sports, into music? Are you, like, like, like where's your head kind of in, in, where are you spending outside of homework and stuff? Like, kind of where is you spending your time and where is your head going in terms of even kind of graduation from the time? And usually that you don't start thinking about that for the last couple of years, but just in a general sense, you know, talk about that high school time and, and what you thought you were going to be doing after. Sure. We had a very interesting perception of school in my home. Like my mother, my mother didn't graduate high school. Right. And so she had a very like relaxed view because she had found a way to survive with this huge family without school. So it was more like, if you go, you go. But, you know, she would ask me if I was going to school today. Like it was that type of relationship with school. And so the bar was so low that I didn't even try in my first few years of high school. I didn't even try. Like I was getting like C's and D's. And then my, my brothers were getting C's and D's and the cousins that live with us were getting C's and D's. Not because I couldn't do better. I just, it was just a lot of apathy towards school because like I said, there were girls around. And, and when you grow with a lot of boys around you, at least in my family, everything was about girls, like everything. Like you couldn't go outside without like, saying, hey, are you going to talk to that girl over there? Are you going to try to get her phone number? So that's kind of like the 
prevailing influence and thought at this time in my life. And what ends up happening is that I just decided that I was, that I could do better and that I wanted like more out of life for myself. Like I wanted to get out of our neighborhood. I wanted to like experience more because I always felt different, but I just couldn't figure out how to like break out of that, like mode of having to fit in and wanting to be accepted by everybody else. So I just felt different. So I said, okay, you know what? I can do better. And literally I just flipped the switch. And then I went from C's and D's to like A's and B's. And by the time I finished high school, I met like all A's. But what happens like during that time, I'm, I'm in sports. So I did like wrestling and I did volleyball and that stuff was okay. But things didn't really turn around until I met this woman named Janice Gensler, who was my basic for Q basic, like that type of basic, basic programming teacher. She was like, you know, Mark, you can do better than you're doing. Because for some reason, even though I'm like doing better in my grades, I wasn't taking computer programming class seriously. Like, I just wasn't doing it. I don't know why. I can't remember what would make me not take it seriously. And she was like, if you want to pass my class, then you need to stay back and do extra credit. And I stayed back. I did so much extra credit that she said, okay, I can't do anything more for you like okay you've maxed out you have like 112 percent average now she's like here take this book home and you could do this at home to like practice on your own and that was like the beginning of like my programming career where i realized that this was a viable career path for me well i want to i want to i'm really curious here with your your mom not necessarily feeling like school was I don't know what the right word, fully important. Did you feel like if you were to te- taking school seriously, you were going to upset her? Was, was there this thing in the, in the house where if I started taking school seriously, this was going to hurt my mom at some level? And, and then at some point you realize, you know what, I have to focus on myself. I'm just, I'm on my, I have two boys who have struggled to graduate high school, right? With all the privilege they have, they've become completely like, the minimal amount I'm going to do, and they're, and they're struggling. And I'm on there all the time. It's like I'm the opposite of your mom almost to an extreme because I know how important it is, which isn't helping. Trust me, I know. I'm just wondering if I, if, if I take the opposite approach. You know where I'm going, right? So I'm just kind of curious where you think, where, where your head is there. Yeah, so when I was growing, going through that phase with her, she was like, she was happy for us to go to school. My siblings would always take the optional days off that we, that she would just give us. I wouldn't do it. And I wasn't so much worried about her as I was about like my siblings though. I was more worried about acceptance with them that I knew it will make me a little bit of an outcast, like a goody two shoes. Because if I go to school, then she's probably going to say, yeah, well, if Mark's going to go, then all of you have to go. And you know, you don't want to be that guy either when you're in the like in the family, right? Like the one who ruins the fun like day off. But I did become that person in a lot of ways, and that led to actually resentment among amongst my siblings for many years. Uh, definitely some resentment there, and even in my family, I'm still seen as an outlier in a lot of ways because I ended up going on to be the first person to graduate with a master's, graduate with a bachelor's. Uh, since then, my little brother, my younger brother, I guess I should say did also finish his bachelor's degree, but I was the first one, like out of not even my uh, immediate family, but like my family, right? Like I was, a, I was like the trailblazer. I showed what was possible. And now since then, like I said, we've had like tons of my nieces and nephews have gone to graduate, you know, 
university and high school, et cetera. But I was the first person to do that. And it was a little bit hard because of, because of that pressure of not being cool. Because I, if you're trying really hard, you end up like spending all your time doing homework, right? And then you can't go do the other stuff. And when you used to be doing other stuff. So anyway, point being is that I think, I don't think that I was worried about hurting her so much as I was worried about like the social impact in, in our you know, immediate social circle of my siblings versus anything else. Yeah, and until you got a little bit more older and more mature to be able to, I think, understand it. You know what? This is not the right path here. Then you, then you got, I guess, time to focus on it. Your, your last two years in high school really changed it. So it seems like you were fortunate to have this programming class in school. Did they have a computer lab at that point? The computers had to be better than what you had at home, or at least they were comparable enough? Completely different, right? Like these were like computers that could, <laughs> they could run Doom, right? Like, like these are like amazing computers at that point. And they did have a computer lab. I, I remember volunteering there to help the teachers. So I used to volunteer to help teachers like navigate computers. And then I also volunteered to support another programming class because we had a professor from IIT. He was a associate professor at IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology uh, in Chicago, but he also taught part-time at this high school that I went to. Very fortunate that I happened to be in the right place at the right time. And so I would go to his class during my free periods and support his classes like a TA. And so I'm getting as much computer time as I could, to be honest with you, through this like nicer computer that could do all these things. I had access to C++ now, and I could also get access to other programming languages. And all this is because of what's available at this school, which again, I, I acknowledge, especially living on the South side of Chicago, I acknowledge how much luck kind of went into the fact that I went to that school and met those teachers or else maybe this journey doesn't go the way that it has gone. Maybe I still end up as a programmer or maybe I don't, I don't know. And I, I, I think things happen for a reason, and, and you got to take those opportunities when they come. So, um, okay, so you're, it's around 1999, you're, right, or at least coming into that, you're a senior in high school, you're, you're spending as much time as you can in the lab, you're still playing uh, volleyball, you said, you're still wrestling at that point, that's got to be eating up time. You are completely challenged to meet as many girls as possible. I, I remember those times, right? Like if you didn't go and talk to that girl, you were not going to look to your friends. It, it was more scary to not do it than to do it, right? Like I remember that, the, those sort of challenges. Even if you didn't want to, it didn't matter. Like you got called out, right? So you're still kind of doing that. Do you, at this point, though, do you have a girlfriend? Like this... I, I imagine having a girlfriend maybe helps stop some of that. <laughs> Did you ever end up having a girlfriend in high school? I had a couple of girlfriends, you know, but they were like phone relationships. Like I met her through a friend that my brother was seeing or something. And we talk on the phone, but never get to see each other because nobody has a car and they likely live on the other side of the city. So I had a couple of those relationships, but mostly I was just like <laughs> a typical like high school boy grinding <laughs> after a girl that you couldn't have, right? Like I was that guy for quite a long time. And uh, so that helps, but doesn't help. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of where my head was around that time. No, there's there's things you learn, right? There's things you learn by being able to just walk up to somebody. And st those are skill sets that um, 
I learned much later on actually in life that I had to, when I was traveling, and suddenly you're alone all the time. Like you gotta learn how to talk to people, even if you don't know them. Like you're learning some of that skill set earlier. Um, though you probably don't realize it then. But what are you thinking now in terms of you're gonna graduate high school, right? This is a this is a, an amazing thing, at least with um, what's happening, like part of the family dynamic you told me, right? So what are you thinking about as your next step as you graduate high school? Oh, I was sold on going to DeVry. They had come to my house. They told my parents that with financial aid and student loans that we could work out something where I could pay like $75 a month. They had computer programming classes. They had hardware classes and I could get access to everything I needed to be successful. And I had, yeah, I was pretty sold. I was like, okay, yeah, DeVry sounds good. I remember their commercials. I remember growing up with the Deri was was that something you saw from TV? Was that something that presented itself from your teachers? No, from TV. Totally TV. And I think that I wonder if my school gave out our information to like potential colleges or something like you know how when you're going to sell a house every lawyer and real estate firm that doesn't know you never reached out they all are now mailing you stuff. And I wonder if something like that had happened because I don't remember if we called or not, but I do remember them like being pretty like intense on like trying to get me to, you know, be there. Like, like I said, a dude came to my house and was just like, look, well, I've done all the numbers based on your like income levels and everything you folks got going on. We can get him there. He can be there and he's going to like be successful. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be successful at DeVry. That sounds good to me. You know what I mean? Like, like, fine, fine. I'll do that. That sounds aggressive. It's like recruiting. They were, they were almost doing, that's interesting. But didn't they get in, in trouble for something like that? Like, like I feel like DeVry has been in some legal trouble for some of their like school practices. I'm not sure, but I, I know some of these for-profit institutions have been under fire over the last like five years or so. You know, when I moved out of New York to Florida, I never saw the commercials. So I, I, I don't know. I guess this was a Northeastern, right? Chicago, New York, maybe, um, but this was like a, you, you, you would go there for like a year or two, right? This was more like trade schooling um, than, but it's still at the time that was kind of revolutionary, right? Because um, unless you were a plumber or you're going into electrician, the trade schools weren't really tailored to this. I think they were one of the first, first uh, companies to kind of treat the computer science side as a trade. Right, right, right. And again, from the on paper, it all sounded great because it was focused education on the things that I wanted to learn. It wasn't about the like prerequisites or the like well-rounded like education. At that time, it was like, yeah, I want to program. I want to make video games because that's what came out of my time programming as a high schooler, right? I wanted to make video games and that's what I was really set on doing. So the faster I can get to that point, you know what I mean, the better. And, and they almost would have gotten me, to be honest with you, except for my best friend at high school, one of my best friends uh, was like, hey, why don't you come to this college preview weekend with me? And I was like, eh, I don't really know. But he's like, look, we're going to stay on campus and we'll be free, right? Because, you know, you have teenagers, so you know how much they yearn for freedom at this age. And he's like, we'll be free for a weekend. We hang with all these college kids. And I was like, yes, let's do it. And I ended up going uh, north of Chicago to this uh, small town called Lake Forest and Lake Forest College. And I had a blast. It was 
revolutionary for me because remember I'm, I'm growing up on the south side and then here's the other thing being a middle child a lot of responsibility falls on you whether you like it or not and you become the responsible one because you're not the oldest you're not the youngest and you feel this like sometimes you can feel this like responsibility to take care of everyone and make sure everyone's okay so i was just like always doing stuff like even for your older siblings you you were being pulled i, I could see the younger siblings pulling on you a little bit because, the, but the older siblings too were, were, were pulling on you? They were, they would rely on me for stuff just because I had it more together than they did, right? Like, so they just rely on me for stuff and just like, hey, Mark, do you, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really like weird dynamic that I had with my siblings because I've, I've always felt like I'm the oldest and I've always identified as the oldest, even though I'm not. And even to this day, 30 years later, I'm still by my siblings, like, I'm seen as like the more centered one, if that makes sense. Stable, centered, reliable, reliable. I think reliability has to do with that, right? Like I can count on Mark without question. If Mark says this is going to happen, it's going to happen, right? You don't meet a lot of people like that in your life. So they have you for that. Well, you should talk to my therapist because we've, we've gone through this in, in depth about like, <laughs> this relationship with my siblings. And how I need to be able to say like no and let them just figure things out because what ends up happening um, as a part of this story. So I'm ready to go to college. I go to Lake Forest College for the weekend. I love it. It is amazing. I meet cool people, and I'm like I'm out of the house. I get to redefine myself. I'm not trying to be like my older brothers, right? I'm not trying to. I'm not pressured into all these like social things that they want to do that I don't want to do. It's a new start for me. But out of the house, out of the house, I think is the important one, right? Because I've, I've, I've got all my, told all my kids, one kid wanted to go to community school. I said, you ain't doing it here. Go to Orlando. You're going three hours away. Like, I don't care where you, what you do, but you're not in this house because you're not going to learn what you need to learn, right? So I imagine your brain went, oh my God, if I go to DeVry, I'm, I'm still at home. If I come here and it's only what, an hour, two hours away anyway? It was a 45 minutes on a good day by car and an hour and a half on a bad day, but far enough. It was far enough. Far enough where nobody can just show up and ask you to do something close enough if you had to get home. That's right. That's exactly right. Close enough. I could be home within two hours by train. So let me ask you a question. You, you, you fall in love with that experience, right? Your brain probably says, I, I need to be here. Plus, I've got a buddy that's going to be there, too. But are you now worried about how you're going to, I don't think there's any worry about you getting into the university, but what's your worry about paying and getting all that? Was there a worry there too, or your brain was just locked in? No. So both of those things, uh, I was worried about paying because it was a private school. And at the time it was 24,000 a year, which I know compared to today's rates. Wait, 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 wait. This little university an hour outside of Chicago in 1999, it's 24,000 a year. That's, That's right. like my University of Miami level. Uh, at the, I mean, wow. Whoa. Okay. I'm hoping that include everything. It did. It was room and board. No books, of course, but room and board, you know, tuition. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah. So I was worried about that. But here's the thing that helped. They were ranked like top three in the country in financial aid. And that made the difference. That made the difference that they could give me so much financial aid. Plus I, I applied for a bunch of grants. 
Um, the one thing that was holding me back is that at that time I was very poor, like at taking a standardized test. So, you know, you have the SAT and the ACT, right? I think the ACT is out of 36 maximum score. I got a 19 on the ACT, which is a very limiting score, no matter how like smart you are, very limiting. So my choices were already kind of slim because I had this test and I just didn't want to retake it. Didn't have the support system of people like, hey, Mark, let's get you a tutor and then let's get you like some better skills to be able to do better. So I don't have any of this type of support. So everything that I'm doing at this point is uncharted waters, right? Like nobody knows anything because my parents, again, didn't go to college, right? So I'm just on my own. And a good buddy of mine, uh, he's still my best friend to this day. We've been friends since we were 14 years old. Uh, his mom, I used to go to his house every weekend because he was the computer kid you dreamed of because he had all the latest stuff, all the latest gear. And he just, he just had it all in my eyes. At least at the time, I felt like he had it all. I hung out with him all the time. Let me, uh, I, I want to, where did you meet him? Was he living also in your neighborhood that he had all this stuff? Where, how, how did you meet your, your best friend here, you know, at 14? Sure. In gym class, in gym class, uh, he was, he was an atypical person, like physically. So he's like six, six, but he's also always been over 400 pounds his whole life. Right. Today, he could be a linebacker for any professional football team. <laughs> oh, easily, easily. Right. Like, like he's so large. He looks like a giant. Right. I mean, that's his thing. He looks like a giant. But, you know, kids are really mean. Kids are just the most <laughs> high school kids, especially around that age, are just the meanest in the world. Anyway, so. I just was kind to him, not out of like uh, sympathy, just out of respect for other people. And, I, and I'm always the person that's going to try to call everybody in. That is just my personality. Like if we're in a big group, I want to make sure that everybody's included. That's just who I am. So because of that, I just was like that with him. And then one day he said, hey, do you play video games? And I'm like, uh, yeah. He's like, you want to come over to my house? I'm like, no, because that's weird, because that's not a social thing that you kind of did in my neighborhood. You know what I mean? To somebody you don't know. Right. Like you don't really go to somebody's house, but I ended up going and then building this lifelong friendship. And uh, so his mom, one day playing video games on a Saturday, his mom made me sit down at the computer that had Internet and was like, fill out your FAFSA form, like oh. fill out all this financial aid. And she made me do all this stuff that I didn't want to do. And I remember being like, why am I going to do all of this? It doesn't really matter. And she made me do it. And that was what helped me get the financial aid to be able to go to college. Even today, all of my kids have, I've told them, like, you're, you know, I'll, I'll help you with books and I'll help you with food and I'll help you with rent. But, you know, they've, they're still using fast for today for the school loans, right? Like, um, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Were you, after you filled it all out and you got awarded some loans, were, did your brain go, was there a light bulb there? Because it sounds like you didn't really understand why you were filling all that out or you didn't, didn't believe that you would get money? I didn't think I was going to get money because my perception of wealth was different. Like I didn't know we, how poor we were when I was growing up. My mother did a great job of like smoking mirrors where it looked like we weren't poor, but we, you know, now that I look back, I'm like, man, I don't even know how we made it. Like, I don't know how we were able to function the way that we were. But my mother was a hustler though. Like, like she was a get it done at any cost type of person. And she would figure it out. Like that was just her personality. And some of that transferred over to me, which is how I was able to accomplish some of the things that I've accomplished 
but yeah. So I didn't think that I was going to get any money for it. So you, you didn't have everything you wanted, but you had everything you needed. That, that kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, um, obviously, you know, I, my parents weren't very wealthy either. Right. And, and, um, I grew up in a neighborhood where everybody had everything. Right. And it sucked for me. My grandmother was making me my clothes all the way through like elementary school. Right. <laughs> um, and I'm not going to, right. And so I, I always felt that too about my childhood. I didn't have everything I wanted, but I never needed for anything ever, you know? And now even looking back, I'm like, I don't know how she, how did they do that? How did they make that happen, right? It's mind blowing. Yeah, there's no book as you become older and you become a parent. There's like, I remember when I had my first kid, I'm like, where's the book? I need a book. And you start to realize that you, you, you kids think their parents know everything that's going on. Like we, we are clueless. We just, the smoke and mirrors is, is a good way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, smoke and mirrors, I'm telling you, that'll do it for you. She just made it look like we had more than we had. And the critical things, right? Like, we just had the critical things and the critical wants. Like, she was able to get me a Super Nintendo, right? Like, however she did it, I don't know. Like, I don't know what she borrowed from or how she said it. I have no idea because my mother is also passed. But she just, like made a way she always made a way and that's one of the things that i like remember and that i'm grateful for is that that was my life story that like my mother made a way when it seemed impossible yeah that's brilliant I, and that's that's brilliant I, I i feel some of that like even growing up but let's go back to your your friend's um mother here so you fill out the fafsa you got a bunch i'm sure they also gave you some scholarships so now you have enough money to to go away, you still need to eat and you still need books. So I imagine you're going to get a job when you start university. How was that first year of university for you? Uh, it was fun. It was super fun. First year was great because I ended up, I didn't get, I don't think I got a work study job that first year. I can't remember. I actually can't remember if it was first or second, but first year, I remember going back when I go into the bookstore because I'm in computer science and mathematics. Like those are my focus because I remember I want to make video games, right? So I do computer science, mathematics, and all physics classes and uh, a Japanese class my first like year. Because of course you want to go to Japan to make video games. This is what where my like ambitious mind is taking me. Those books were so expensive. They were so expensive. And I was like, I don't have money for this. <laughs> and so I remember going back to the financial aid office like, what can you do? And they were like, well, we can give you a voucher, but that's going to increase your student loans and everything. So I remember like maxing out my voucher that first year and then, or the first semester and then continuing to max out every year pretty much because then I ended up getting, I ended up becoming a resident advisor my second year. Then by my third year, I actually picked up an off-campus job as well. So I ended up working two jobs, but that was for a very different reason. Um, <laughs> After my second semester of my freshman year, I get a call that my mother is in a hospital and then she ends up dying like three days later. And so immediately I have to make this really big like life change because what, so here's the part of the story I didn't tell you is that my dad was my stepfather and he hadn't adopted us, right? Like he didn't adopt us. And so the, so what ended up happening is I had to become the legal guardian of my siblings in order for us to not get separated. That fell on you. And you're like 19 at the time, 18, 19 at the time. Correct. Then, and this is in the middle of your second semester. 
Well, right at the end. Yep, we were just right finishing there. up. All right, so at least you got to finish the semester out, right? And now you have the entire summer, I guess, to have to deal with all this. Wow. So you, you become the legal guardian of everyone. Yep. Well, of, the, the, of the, the younger kids. Youngers. The younger kids, yeah. Everybody under 18. Yep, and I'm only 18. And uh, <laughs> so that was really weird. That was really weird. And so my stepdad stuck around. I mean, he was the type of person that, like, you very, you find very few people of this type of, like, just character in life, I think. And he loved us as if we were his biological children. And it was very clear my whole life. So he stuck around, but we had to make arrangements where, like, the housing had to go in my name because it couldn't go in his name because he was not our legal guardian. You see what I'm saying? And so, like, all the arrangements that they were making to, like, survive, I had, had to go on my name. And so, and then he also just kind of offloaded some of the parenting to me. Like he would call me and be like, hey, I need you to talk to one of your sisters. They need help. They need this. Or I had to go and take them to go buy school clothes. Or I need to help with some of the bills at the house, right? Like all this responsibility is like, can follow on me. So as you start your second year of university and your, your two hour train ride away, the your younger siblings are still living in the house with your stepdad, and you're having to do you're, you're having to handle both now. You even have to s support them some somewhat financially, as well. Right. Wow, right. Right. does that that must have completely diminished your front your weekends and everything? Where you you must have been coming home. That's a big burden to put on an 18 year old. I mean, it, yeah, it is, but. What I would end up doing a lot of times, so I would go home on the weekends uh, quite a bit, but not every weekend. My, I tell you, my dad was great because he knew he didn't want to rob me of that experience. So he did everything he could to give me that space. But he also acknowledged just how limited he was being a single parent with these growing kids. Right. And not having any help. Uh, but that's fair. That's hard, too. I mean, that's fair. Right. And these aren't his kids. You know, you got to put that in there. These are not his kids. And he could have restarted his life if he wanted to, right? Because he was still pretty young. Uh, he could have restarted his life. It would just start over, right? Um, but so what, what I, here's what I would do. I would wake up around 4.30, something like that, go into Chicago, go to whatever appointment I had to go to prove their well-being, to get legal guardianship or, own, or get ownership of the, or legal guardianship of the kids, you know, whatever, whatever office appointments, whatever checkups and things I had to do to prove that they were all okay. I would just do it early in the morning, right? Before my first class. And I would get up, go down to the city, go to wherever, or if I had to go home, go do that. Then I would get back, go to school, then go to work or like, because I was a resident assistant, I had to be there certain nights a week for sure, like hands down. So I would just do that. And then we made that dance work. And I'm very grateful that he still allowed me to have that type of like space to still experience college even if it was in like an abridged way, it was still a lot of space to experience college. And, and the thing that it did for me is that I was the only 19 year old that I, that I knew on that whole campus who knew how to do anything. Yeah. You know how to function the city. You knew the, you knew the paperwork, you knew the, the rule, you knew logistics, you knew. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's a skill. I knew all those things like, okay, if you need this, I know who to call. If you need uh, financial support, I knew who to call. I knew who to call about housing. I knew, what it was like to like, you know, do all these things, you know, like, yeah, do my own laundry. And like, I just knew so much by the time I had turned like 19 and going to 20, like th those years I had just learned a ton. 
Did you not consider changing schools to be closer to the house? And to, to, did you not consider that? Or you just loved that university and that's where you wanted? And I'm assuming you, you, you finished your four years there and you got a degree. Mm -hmm. I don't think I considered it much outside of the dread of having to do it. Because there was this other thing that happened that never happened. Uh, sorry, what it never came true. My my mother's siblings said that they would support us as we kind of went through the whole thing. That's what they said. Because I was like, I don't want to have to come home because I really loved school. And I loved who I, who I was at school. And I loved who the potential and like the community I had built. Like I loved all of that. And you know, as, as altruistic as I may sound like as a person, I mean, I'm still like a selfish teenager at the same time, right? Like want my own life. I want my own freedoms and all that was in like jeopardy. And I think that, I think if my dad had been like, you know what, Mark, you have to come back. I would have resented him, but I would have done it because I knew that's what I would have had to do, right? I would have resented the situation, but I would have done it. I mean, it's amazing. And your siblings are lucky that you were mature enough at that time to have the right priorities around family, right? Because... You could have easily said, no, I'm living my own life here. And you wouldn't necessarily have been wrong for it, right? But you didn't, you didn't choose. You, you found a way to balance what you wanted to finish with, with uh, family. That, that's amazing. Okay, so you're about to graduate university. The, you, I'm assuming you're going to have a, some form of a BA or a BS in computer science. What's your degree in at the end of, the, at the end of that? Sure, major computer science, minor mathematics. Wow. What aspect of the university degree did you love the most? I, I enjoyed learning how to, I think, program the most, the lower level programming out of my university. But what was it that, was it more hardware for you? Was it more software? What part of the degree um, did you kind of resonate the most with? Honestly, the computer science degree was great, but I just loved learning so much because I got to take so many like, so it was a liberal arts school. So they kind of force you into all these different like categories of like classes. And I just got to learn about so many different types of people. And I got to learn so much about, like I took an acting class and I took, you know, language classes and all these different things that I wouldn't have taken otherwise if I had gone to just like a technical school. And I really appreciated that to be honest with you. Like, I really appreciate that. I mean, the computer programming stuff, I just had this one professor who I, you know, who had a really huge impact on me because he was one of those like special types, like a genius who was so smart that he knew how to like program himself to be kind. Cause you know, some people get so smart, they don't know how to interact with other people, but he was so smart that he could like program himself. And he had like this special job every summer that he couldn't talk about because of his like mathematic ability, he just, you know, was get swept away every summer for two weeks with no contact because he was doing this special secret job he couldn't tell anybody about. And he was just such a great teacher. And I really loved how he showed me what was possible with programming. Like, you know how sometimes when you first learn how to code, everything is possible, then you learn how hard things are. So then you limit your scope of what's possible. And then he just was like, oh, we can do this. It was always that type of like delightful, like, oh, we can do this. And I've taken a lot of that into, into my own career. We want to hear hard problems like, oh, we can do this and let's just figure it out. We can figure this out. And so that I think was really important for me. As you're now graduating, you still have three younger siblings. Oh, well, at this point, now you're like 20, 
maybe you're 21, 22 when you're graduating university. Um, and I imagine even if your younger siblings were 18, I mean, you're still probably man, you know, taking care of them, right? So what are you thinking now as you graduate university, what your next step is? I, I'm imagining you're looking for work, you're gonna move back home, like what, kind of where your head is at that point. So two places, moving back home and then graduate school, because I end up going to, I got a fellowship to go to UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago. Uh, so I got into this program and so I'm thinking about that. And then I'm thinking about like, this would be the first time that I've lived at home full time since my mom died. Right. And that was very hard. That was very hard because now, so I was like a weekend dad, so to speak to like my siblings, you know what I mean? Cause they had their full-time parent who was there with them every day. And now I'm home trying to also co-parent. And I, but now I have all these ideas. I'm, I'm a little bit arrogant maybe because I've been educated now and I have like this degree and I went to this fancy private school. And when I say fancy, the reason it's fancy is because in my dorm, where, I, where my room was next door, the daughter of the CEO of 3M was there, like in the next room, right? And then some other like Saudi Arabian princes like were down the hall from me. And so you had like lots of people who came from extreme wealth at this school. I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask you what kind of the makeup was because at the price at 20, you know, there had to be a fairly wealthy constituents of, of students there. I didn't think they were going to be a, a Saudi prince or something like that, but really wild, right? To, did, you know, did you get to meet these people and interact with these people? And Oh, every day because they were cool. They were cool. Like if you were a football fan at all, uh, some football players from people from like the early 2000s, there's this football player called Brian Erlacher, uh for the Bears. His brother was at my school and he used to come up there and play basketball. And I'll tell you just a quick aside. You think that pro athletes are just humans who are a little bit faster than you. You've never gotten like pushed around by a pro athlete. I will tell you, I remember playing basketball with Brian Erlacher and a couple of other Chicago Bears. And I had never felt a human who felt like a brick wall before, but that's what it felt like. You know, this little like 175 pound, six, two teenager trying to like post up against like Brian Erlacher from the NFL. And it felt like me trying to post up against a brick wall. Like that was you know, like masonry bricks, right? It was mind boggling how much stronger and bigger and faster pro athletes are than like the average adult. Mark, Mark, I played, I played a pickup game with a kid that was at the top of the D3, Division three college scale. Yeah. Uh -huh. And my mind was blown with what this kid was doing. And my brain went, dude, you're only good enough for D3. I can't even imagine what the D1 guys are doing out here to school you. Because, like, I, I didn't, like, mind-blowing, dude. Like, athletes at that, that level or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And totally I only experienced right. it at D three. Like, I don't even want to. I don't want to play against anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm only five eight, and I'm back then maybe a buck twenty wet. You know, so. <laughs> but but so 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 you you understand what I'm saying about that? But those are the types of people that I hung out with, right? Like like that's just how it was. Like, there's this kid last name was Zales, like Zales Diamonds, right? Like that, those are kids I went to school with. They never talked about financial aid. They never talked about money. They never talked about getting a second job. Like they just partied and had fun. Whereas I'm going to work, you know what I mean? And all this kind of stuff.
And you got the same degree they do, right? I mean, at the end of the day, your resume looks the same. I use it as a confidence boost later on when I like get to some of my other jobs and then there's just some like, well, I went to this place, I went to that place. And I'm like, yeah, we work at the same place. I got this, you know, like I'm sitting across from you. I don't care where you went to school. You know what I mean? That's the tip of my shoulder that, you know, we'll talk about another time, but that attitude, though, like we got the same degree. Let me ask you this. You, you decided you want to do graduate work instead of getting into the, into the uh, industry, right? I'm really curious why you went in that direction instead of to start making money, especially with the, the kind of the burden that you still had on, your, on yourself, having to take care of your siblings. A little bit of fear. And then at the time, there's this trend happening. I'm sure you remember this. This is a little bit fair because the, there's this idea that you could outsource computer science programming jobs to just like to India. 2004, 2005, it was actually happening. Right, exactly. So in 2002 and 2003, we're starting to hear about it at school and how hard it will be to get a job because they're just going to outsource these jobs. So graduate school is actually safer. Safer in terms of... You think not in terms of getting, not being unemployed. So you would you would you'd get that higher level degree that would help you in the in the next two years, and then. But what are you doing for work in the meantime? What's your job while you're going to graduate school? So first year, uh, I became a teaching assistant, and Where? so that helped a lot. Uh, so I was still at, like I said at USC, but I was teaching computers. I was a teaching assistant for a computer science professor. Okay, and. That was great. I loved it because it showed me that I love teaching. And I remember one time, so the class was like an intro to programming class, like a 100 level course. And I taught the lab and it was all for us to do, like as a computer science TAs. And I remember like teaching them about linked lists. And I was like, all right, I need like five of you to come up here. I want you to hold hands. And I was demonstrating. I was like, okay, so who is next? I was like, lift up your, your, your right hand. Who's next? Yeah, that's cool, actually. That's really cool. Way. Yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. And that was one of my first, like, moments of teaching, teaching, where I'm just like, I could be good at this. Like, I could be really good at this someday. And so I'm really grateful for that experience. And so, you know, I get paid, you know, a stipend. I'm still living at home. I'm still helping with bills. I'm still, you know, doing this type of stuff. Uh, my stuff with my dad's getting a little bit harder because I'm an adult. He's an adult. I spent the last four years establishing myself as a different person. He's, you know, been under the pressure of trying to help take care of these kids and like mourn the loss of my mother. I'm mourning the loss of my mother. We're bumping heads a bit. He thinks that I'm arrogant. I probably am, to be honest with you. Probably a little arrogant at this point, you know, standard 20 year old, 21 year old stuff. And we get into more arguments than we had probably ever gotten into. And then I decide that after I think my first year of graduate school, I stayed home. Then I decided that I have to move out because it's just too hard for us, all, to, us to coexist without, with me not being emotionally intelligent enough to understand what's going on. Again, that's a maturity, a maturity thing, right? And that was the best thing for your siblings too. Wow, that's amazing. So, so you get your own place at that point, you get an apartment nearby? Roommates in the city, you know, get some roommates. Uh, <laughs> that, that was, you know, weird days, but get some roommates. And then I ended up doing graduate school, 
then I get this fellowship that really changes my life because the fellowship. So first I was a teaching assistant. I was making like $1,400 a month, but that had to cover everything. It had to cover my contribution to the household. It had to cover any meals while I was out. It had to cover like books. And then it had to cover transportation. That's a very slim budget. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm, I, even in 2000 and I guess we're talking four, 2003, four, it's still, I mean, that's tight. It was tight. I remember eating, my, my, my lunch of choice, because I didn't have any, any money really, was a packet of tuna where they had those, like, you remember those flat packs when they first got introduced? They weren't in the can, you could just at the top. My wife uses them today for lunch when she goes, she teaches, and I have to buy them every week, different flavors, because that's what she eats for lunch every day. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's right. You take one of those, a piece of bread, a piece of cheese, and then you get like a little tuna melt. You pop that sucker in the community microwave and then you get a glass of water and you just you make it work. So that was, that, that's how I helped cover some of the food like stuff. And then, you know, and I ended up doing it. Then I'm moving. What about oodles and noodles? You, you never thought like oodles and noodles was my thing. For a dollar, I could have soup and feel full for like <laughs> for half a day, you know? <laughs> I'm going to tell you something super gross. So... <laughs> Oodles and noodles, I used to eat them dry, like when they were in the brick form. Really? Wow, I, I don't think I could do that, dude. <laughs> I have some, some interesting dietary preferences, and so I would take those, and I would eat them, like, break them off, and they were kind of like a cracker. I wouldn't use the, the seasoning. And, you know, we'll look like a, a Coke or something, and I don't know why that, to me, was like a thing. It just worked for me. Well, I mean, but at a dollar, like, you could get, you could eat for a buck with those... Yeah, oodles and easily. noodles. Yeah, I, 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 I survived university on that. On that, if there were times where I only had like ten bucks left in my pocket, and everybody was going to go drinking that weekend, and I had to figure out, did I want beer or did I want to eat? So the oodles and noodles would be <laughs> my sustenance. <laughs> so I'd have at least like six, seven bucks to, over the weekend. I have a couple of beers, man. Uh, I just remember that, you know. Oh, wow. Anyway, okay. So, so. Let's get back. So you're finishing. I want to get to like what happened. What, what I'm when I, I mean, you know, almost an hour in, and the story is amazing, and I don't want to rush it. But at the same time, you 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 finish your graduate schooling at this point, right? And it's got to be about what 2005 ish. 2006. 2006. And you're you're living with all these roommates. You, you finish this last bit of school. What was your graduate degree in? Computer science. Computer science. So at this point now, you have to get into the job market, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what are you now thinking uh, in terms of where are you applying or where's your head? At this point, are all your siblings in 2005, they're still under 18? Or has some of that responsibility? Not all. Only one is still under 18. The youngest, I think, is still under 18. But my other one, so if I was 2006, I was, what, 25? So Ronnie was 23, Danielle was 21, but I think my youngest sibling was either 18 or 19. So, so maybe she just, you know, just turned. Um, but at this point, a lot of things have changed. Lots of stuff has changed by the time I graduate. So I end up going to the job market, right? And here's how I search for jobs. It, probably to this day, I apply to everything I'm remotely qualified for. I don't even care if I don't have all the qualifications that's listed on the job rec. I'm applying for everything. So I'm waking up every morning right before I defend my thesis. 
or so right after I defend my thesis, I'm applying on Craigslist because I find that there are lots of companies on Craigslist who don't want to pay the fees to be listed on Career Career Builder or all these or Monster, right? So I'm on Craigslist every day applying for jobs. I'm on Career Builder. I'm on Monster. What are you look? What are you applying for? You're applying for software developer positions, regardless of language. Like, where's your? What are you applying for? Or it didn't matter. It was tech, and that's what I wanted. It didn't really matter to me because I felt like I was smart enough. Because one thing I learned in grad school was how to learn. So I was like, I can learn whatever whatever stack you have. I don't really care. Maybe again, maybe a little arrogant, but like I can learn anything. So I'm applying to mostly C and Java jobs. What programming languages were you using in university and graduate school? I, I, Java and C, C was that yep. where you're? Yep. Okay, okay. Those are the okay. primary two. A little bit of JavaScript, but yeah, mostly Java and C. You're just throwing your resume out as many places can. Okay. And then what happens? You, you defend your thesis. What was your thesis about? It's about this thing called learning technologies and embedded phenomena. So the short story of this is my project was on, we took these old, old Windows tablets. This is some of the first Windows tablets. We put them in the classroom and I built the simulation that was like the planets orbiting the classroom. So in each of these tablets, were a window into space. And I flattened all the planets into 2D circles and I gave them arbitrary colors. So I wanted these fifth graders to describe to me what was the order of the planets. And the way you could tell that is through occlusion, which planet went uh, in front of other planets. And if you could do it, you could do it transitively, right? So if the red planet went over the blue planet, the blue planet went over the yellow planet, then the red planet is closer to the sun than both of those. Fifth graders, and, and they had these little cards, these little note cards, and they would write down every time they saw, an, you know, one planet, you know, a clue with the other. And I just, and my research was all about that, about scientific process with like students using embedded phenomena, which was a really fun project. I really loved doing that. I was a part of a group and that's all that we did, right? We all did this embedded phenomena research. One person did earthquakes where they use the tablets as seismographs and they had to go and like measure and triangulate and one other person did uh they did sand on the tablets and they did bug tracks so they could so the students could try to figure out what type of bugs were in the classroom. I mean, it's all all these embedded phenomena from this guy named Tom Moher, Dr. Tom Moher, who was who was uh that was his that was his area of expertise was education and embedded phenomena. I never even heard of that. How is it I'm gonna take a sidetrack here, but it's how how is that applied? say to computer science today, or where would I see something like that in practice, say today? You see more stuff like that in a museum now, right? Like these are like these interactive exhibits that you see in museums where they're like, what kind of species of fish is this? And you got this huge like interactive screen. You know, you just probably, they probably programmed it with Java, right? Like, and Java Swing and they're running it on some like computer. So that's very similar to what we did. I actually use Flash and ActionScript to do mine on the front end. Practical. So again, this is more about like the science, the science side of computer science. You know what I mean? And like the programming was fun to us as grad students, but that was the like lower part of the totem pole. It was more about the research for our, you know, uh, our thesis and stuff. So, what's the first job you now take out of out of once you finish graduate school? What's that first job? I take this amazing job. <laughs> This fantastic job uh, out of like the suburbs of Chicago, working for a company that did like 
print catalogs. So they had the software that could help you print like the Sears holiday catalog, right? And it, it was like a CMS kind of. Still, uh, I guess still in 2005, printing is still, that industry just disappeared overnight, man. Mm -hmm. But it's huge in 2005, 2006. And I'm working at this job. The hours are 7 a.m. Central to 4.30 p.m. Central. That kind of works for you, doesn't it? I mean, you're used to being up at four in the morning already. <laughs> at that point, I was not. Because remember, everybody's grown up now for the most part. And, you know, my responsibilities are a little less. It's more financial responsibility than, like, you know, having to go to offices and do stuff anymore. And yeah, it was uh, great because they were like, hey, if you're in the top 10% of workers in the world, you don't need to check websites doing work. That's what the best people do. They don't check their phones. See, the best people only need a 15 minute break. The best people in the workforce, you know, they go to lunch, they come back and then they're ready to work. The best people are here early. The, you see what I'm saying? So they're indoctrinating me. Who was saying the company was saying that? Well, it was a very small company. And so my direct leader was saying that, like, oh. yeah, it was only me here in the U.S. And then I was managing a group of offshore developers, right? As I'm a junior developer myself, because just because I have a master's doesn't mean anything. I don't have any real programming experience, right? Um, but I'm managing these offshore developers and then working on, like, some projects here, you know, like locally. And this job was horrible because I felt like I couldn't get a better job because I wasn't like good enough. You see what I'm saying? Like they had all the brainwashing had worked. How long were you there? Uh, 18 months until I got fired. You just couldn't take it anymore or. Oh no. They, they fired me after 18 months. They said that I was using my phone at work and they saw me checking email and that I was late too often. Okay. That late part is true. I used to get there at 712 like every day because it was just so hard to like. <laughs> so did that, did you know that was coming or was it like you just walked in one day and they were like, goodbye? Were you able to prepare for that? Heck no. That week, I thought I was doing great. Like I remember walking in that day after closing this really big project and being like, man, you know, like, all right, so let me know what to do next. And then they were like, yeah, just, just hold on for a second. And then because there were only two of us in the, in, the, in the office, like the lead of sales and then this the engineering, like VP of engineering. That's the only people that are in that office. So they go and talk. And then they come back and tell me that it's not going to work out. Hand me this document with these like reasons about why I wasn't performing properly. And I was like, what? And then I cried my eyes out in the car. I didn't let them see me cry, but I cried in the car. I, I had never failed at anything. And that was devastating. That sucked. That really sucked. I mean, I, you look at back now, it wasn't that you failed, right? It was just something wrong with them at the end of the day, right? No, it's just quick, quickly. They had this thing they used to say, what well, you know, like, don't worry about it. You know, we'll call it a mutual, you know, reorg or whatever. And everybody who we let go from here, they always go up. Don't worry about it. They always go up. And I was like, whatever, shut up. I don't give a fork about what you're talking about. Like, get out of my face. Like, you just fired me. I don't have benefits anymore. I don't have an income now. Like, get out of here. Um, so, yeah. So that sucks pretty bad. And no severance. Not even, like, a couple weeks. Wow. No. 
So 18 months. So now you're talking like 2008. And we're about mm -hmm. to go into the mortgage mm -hmm. crash of 2008. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Yep. 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 That's right. So that's how right. long does it take you to uh, find another job from that point? Maybe six weeks. And I was a machine for looking for another job. And I mean so because here's how I applied. I would wake up every single day before I did anything else. I would sit at my well, brush my teeth, of course, but I would sit at my computer. And then I would apply to every single job that I saw, even more voraciously than I did as, you know, a graduate student. And I would do that until I started seeing only the jobs I had applied for. So if it was a job with something that I just didn't know, then of course I wouldn't apply. But any programming with C, C++ or Java or something that I felt like I could learn, like, oh, I could do VB if they needed me to, fine. You know, I would just apply until I found but it was hard because I had this red flag. Why did you have a red flag? Because I got fired. So telling the new employer what happened with my last company, is, it was really hard to figure out like how to describe that to them. How would you describe it today? N knowing where you are now, right? I, I can totally get that, right? Because you want, you want to be fully transparent and honest and, and you're not sure how to do that. Like, how, how would you describe it? Today, I would just describe it as the company reorged everything, and uh, you know, and this was a mutual decision, right? Like, I would probably tell you a story right now. I would probably say, you know, I worked there. I did a lot of a lot of great things. I learned so much. But at the end of the day, I want to be at a place where I feel like I can thrive and contribute to the company the most. And I don't think that was the right place for me. And I think they agreed with that, which is why we parted ways. So I will say that to you right now. And that's a brilliant answer, right? That's a brilliant, brilliant answer, right? So, okay, so what's the next job you end up taking then after you've thrown all your resumes? How many interviews did you end up getting? Did you, did you interview at least a half a dozen? Oh, at least, at least. Were you going to be more picky? Were you going to be more picky this time? Or did you feel like you needed to get income again? Where was your head there? I was running out of money, <laughs> like... I had managed to save just a little bit. I had a good tax return that year. So I had like $3,500 or something to my name. And I'm like, all right, so I'm not flat broke, but I don't have enough. I don't have a long runway, right? And so, yeah, I was like, I need some income. I need some income pretty bad. And so I just applied. I ended up getting a job at a research company that was like a not-for-profit, but it wasn't a non-profit, just a not-for-profit company. And I ended up getting a job there they love me because of my communication skills. So I become like this thing, almost like a su application support engineer where you call me and then I walk you through whatever software problem you have, but I write a patch for you if I could recognize that it was a problem. You see what I'm saying? And then I could deploy that patch. With their software, With their just software. to the customer. It, just to you, that customer, right? Let me ask you a quick question though. The second job, was your salary, I don't want the number, but was the salary the same or did you end up making more money? I'm just I can curious. tell you the number. Uh, the number's not important. Which, well, you want to share that, that's fine. But I'm curious if you ended up getting more money or less money, like what happens? I got $20,000 more at that job, like $20,000 more. And that was game changing. Like I felt like I was like rich at that time. Yeah, I mean, what, that's almost, that's like $1,500 more a month that you were, uh huh. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. How long were you at this job? Oh, three and a half years. 
And see, that's a long time. So I, I, did you, how did you progress in this job, right? You started at the desk where you're handling customer support with the ability to fix bugs there on the fly, which I had never heard of in my life. I imagine you just sent bug fixes where the, the software went right to the customer, or did it at least go back to the main product? Because that means you've got a lot of different product out there. Right. So if it was a general like fix that like everyone's going to have this issue. So the way the company worked, they had different builds for different like customers because it was for research. They did government research. So let's say it was for like government agency A. They had a version that was customized for them. So I could send it to that app like a patch. Right. Or, or to the laptop that's running that software, I can send them a patch that might not be relevant for agency B. Like they may not even need that. How is the source code being, how is the source code being managed? Did each one of these customers have their own repo somewhere? Yep. Or, okay. Okay. So you could go into that repo, make that patch and then send them a new build. Mm -hmm. You must've loved that because you could fix things immediately with the customer and get that satisfaction back um, and everybody thanking you a thousand times. I was so good at this job that the, the field officers that were out there like collecting data, they would call and ask for me. <laughs> That's how good I was at it. Because I, one, you gotta imagine, you, had, you have been like knocking on people's doors to get data, right? So to find this respondent. Somebody finally says yes and you can't like sync their data or you can't launch the app after all of this back and forth for months or weeks. So it's super high pressure for you. And then here, here I go, hey, you know what? I hear you, I'm right there with you. Here's what we're gonna do. Just open your laptop. I totally get that true. You know, I'm talking you down off the edge and I'm like, I got your back. Don't worry about it. I got your back. We're gonna do the best to get, get you what you need. Go ahead and do this for me. And then you hear the, oh, it worked, it worked, it worked. Oh my gosh. And I'm just like, hey, no problem. You know, I hope you get a good interview with them. If you need anything else, let me know. And then I'm getting all the accolades. I'm winning awards for this work. But here's the rub. I'm so good at it that they don't want to promote me out of this job. That's crazy, right? You have all this amazing empathy for people, which is it, which which allows you to 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 drive all of this, right? And now you're so good, they're like, no, you're stuck there. It, it, even if they're giving you raises, it doesn't matter, right? You know that you're never leaving that desk. Because when I decide to leave, that's what held me back the most. I went on probably 30 interviews when I decided to leave that company. And most people just couldn't get over the fact that I didn't have any like full, full scale, like software development experience. I had only done like smaller, like bite-sized projects, but I hadn't like led a product, you know, through a release. I hadn't like contributed major features to a product intentionally that wasn't like bug related, right? I only had very little experience doing that. So that, yeah, that's, that's 2011, 2012. 2011, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so the feedback you're getting is, we don't feel comfortable putting you on this team because you don't have enough process experience to work with this team. That's, that's crazy. My uh, programming like, skills had atrophied just a little bit because I wasn't working on features really, you know what I mean? Like, so it atrophied. And so anyway, I go through all these dozen interviews. They're like, well, describe MVC, MVC to me. I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know? And then they're like, 
hey, what is the difference between a vector and an array? And what's the, all these hardcore Java questions? You know what I mean? No, you know what that was, Mark? That was the person interviewing you trying to show off that they were 10 times smarter than you in this yeah. little academic space. I hated those interviews. I think even one time I turned around, I said, are you trying to prove that you know more than I do? Because that's not what the goal here is, right? No, yeah, I, I, I lost it one time. because I was just like tired of it. I was like, stop. This is, and I don't interview that way specifically because that's not what it's about. So yeah, I mean, oh, going through that is horrible. And, and I go through this process, right? And then I finally find a, a consulting firm that's willing to take a chance on me because they like me so much. They, and they gave me the feedback. They're like, we can only bring you in as a, at a lateral move. You'll make the same amount. And I'm like, not, okay, if this happened today, I would not have, not have accepted that. I would have pushed back on the lateral offer. But, but I didn't know back then about how to negotiate. So, and plus I was like, okay, this is a stepping stone. I go there, I end up thriving, doing super great. You know, I get a, a raise the first year and then I'm up for a promotion the second year that I'm there and then things are going okay. But then I get a call about a company where I can make another $20,000 more. Cause I'm trying to get as close as I can to hundred K a year. Right. Which is like unheard of, but and remember scale it back to 2011. Everybody gets hundred K salary now. Right. Like that's what everybody kind of goes for. But back then, if you're making 75,000 as a programmer, that's good money. Right. And only the senior, senior people are making over six figures. So, I'm just trying to get close to that. So I jumped to a healthcare company. I go there. I'm thriving, thriving. You know, I, I like to do this thing where I like to say I terraform culture around me. Everybody there was kind of like heads down like robots. And I'm like, no, we're not going to work like that. No, we're not going to work like that. We're going to like get to know each other. We're going to learn how to support each other and blah, blah, blah. So I start this thing called the push-up club where at 4.15 every day, meet, everybody meets at the same place and do whatever you feel comfortable. So it wasn't a competition, it was an inclusive effort. And it got to the point where people did it without me because it took on a life of its own. Then I started Well-Dressed Wednesdays. I'm like, we come in here, you know, in t-shirts and like shorts and flip-flops every day, one day a week, let's just dress nice, just to feel good, right? Not for any corporate appeasement, just to feel good. Then I start this thing where when we have our massive stand-up, my team, because I get uh, moved up to team lead, we have a theme song and intro music every time we walk up to the large group stand-up. So this whole time, I'm terraforming the culture to be this like place where everybody feels welcome. When it's time for our one-on-one, because I was a team lead slash manager, let's go get a milkshake on me, right? If you feel comfortable, let's go get some food on me. Let's just walk and talk. This doesn't have to be scary. And... Yeah, so everything's going great there. So the healthcare company, you start there maybe around 2015, and you're there for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So you know, I started the healthcare company. Uh, let's see, 2000. I started on like tax day 2014 or 14. 13. Okay, and you're there for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I have two questions there from the store. I actually have two questions, a technical one, and then I want to briefly talk about the terraforming you're doing there. I worked in a healthcare company, like one of my first, maybe my second job in my career. And the regulations that were, that you had to deal with were like nightmarish for me. Did you experience any of that? Did you like having to work in that regulatory environment or was it 
Yeah, okay. Mark's shaking his head if you can't see him. No, like, sorry, no. yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, no, 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 no. An emphatic no. The only thing that came out of that job is that I learned how much the healthcare system is rigged against the consumer. That's what I learned, to be honest with you, because of all the like rules around what gets covered, what doesn't get covered, around like deductible versus max out of pocket versus this, and then they can, and then lifetime maximum benefit. Right where you can still max out your insurance. So if you get really, really, really sick, you might be screwed. Right? Like I learned about all that stuff, and I'm just like, man, this thing is a racket. Like it is not like advantageous to the consumer. Oh. Did you get at least early on? You must have gotten some pushback for all of these kind of social things you wanted to do, especially with people who had been there much longer than you. Right? Like leave me alone. I'm happy with where I'm at. Stop. Don't, don't do this. So there were people who were not for the push-up club or the well-dressed Wednesdays. They refused to participate. And here's how I see that. Everybody has a choice, right? Like everybody has a choice. And I, I don't think that all of my propositions were the best for everyone. But what I was trying to do was make it where people enjoyed coming to work. That's what I was going after. So when I got pushed back, I was a good listener, I still am, right? And I like to listen to people, I like to ask questions like, oh, let me know, like, you know, why you feel the way if you're comfortable. And like, like when I'd be like, hey, you come to push-up club and somebody will say, no, it's impossible for me to do a push-up. I'm like, man, okay, Mark, this is a lesson learned right now because there may be like confidence things, there may could be physical like limitations that people have. So don't push it in such a way that makes people feel like you're judging them if they don't want to do this with you. Right. And so there was some like learning some mistakes there that I got because some people just didn't like me, you know, because I was that guy that was like rallying the troops all the time. And, you know, they just didn't like me for it. And I understood, you know, I'm not everybody's cup of tea. That is a learning curve. I could tell you this. The first time I was ever made a manager, uh, one guy wanted to quit after a week. He and I ended up becoming very good friends, but there's no book, right? I was really, uh, there's no other way to say it. I was an asshole for a week. I was just too pushy, too demanding. I'm not like that anymore. It's so important, I think, to have people above you, direct um, managers above you that can appreciate that you need to learn and tolerate the mistakes. And as long as you're learning from them, and I, I love when you said, yeah, I made a bunch of mistakes. I don't do that anymore. That's that's the key, right? There's There's... No manager knows how to manage until they do it. Question is, are you going to adapt? Okay, so how long are you at the healthcare company? When, when do you leave the healthcare company, and how do you find that next opportunity? Is it something that you're looking for ahead of? Talk about that next transition. And what year was that? So January of 2015 is when I actually leave the healthcare company because when I was at that consulting firm, I met this one guy who I'm still very good friends with today. And this other guy, Marcus. And so we hit it off. We stay friends after we both leave that consulting firm. You know, like friends, like we go out together or like go to each other's house for like things and do double dates with our partners. He goes over to Amex and he's like, hey, uh, what are you doing right now at this healthcare company? And I'm like, uh, I'm working on Angular JS right now, helping them like they're building a new version of the web app in Angular JS. He's like, well, we're thinking about that here. Once your interview, we can offer uh, up to 120 if you come over here. And I'm like, 120? 
Yeah, you're going to get over 100, which is like one of your goals at this point. Well, because, so again, at that time, 120,000 is like, what you think is probably like peak salary, and you learn to be super happy with that. You know what I mean? Like, in my mind, at least, because of how long I've been in the industry. I'm like, if I get to 120, I know I'm not going to get a lot more money than that, but that's okay, because 120 means I can get a house for my family. We can be comfortable. No more checking my bank account before we go out to eat. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that number is like a destination number for a lot of people. And I still think it's a good number. Just just to put in perspective here, my first job that I got out of university in 1991, I got $18,000 a year because after six months of nobody wanting to hire me, I took whatever job I could get. I didn't even care about the money. I needed the experience. I don't think I, I, don't think I got $100,000 salary until maybe 2004. Like, mm. that's how long it took. Now, you got to also remember during that time, 100000 was... Nobody was making 100000 right? And when I got it in 2004, it was some promotion, and I was like, my, like, oh, my God. Like, but, like, right, look how long that took, you know? Like, it drives me crazy sometimes when I, when I see these, uh, I see people coming out of university, and they want to make 100000 200000 out of school, and I'm like, you got to pay your dues. I mean, it, it, that didn't happen for me overnight. I, you know, and it's the same thing with you, right? Like, you got to earn that. If you don't earn it, then you don't even appreciate it. Right, but at right, that point, right. you earned it, right? You, I, I think at least at that point, you've earned it. You, you have the skill set. You got the experience. And I've learned a lot. I've worked really hard. And the thing about that whole like six-figure range, like I think I like to tell people like this. That money is available to you. So don't like discount that it's available. But you may not get it right out of a boot camp. And that's okay, right? Like you got to understand, like that's okay, but don't like think that you could never get there. But give it time, just give it time. And so I end up doing the Amex interviews. Then my, you know, and they go well. They go really well because they needed a Angular JS expert, which expert is a really strong word. But at that time, the framework like proficiency levels are not like what they are now, where people where you find so many people. Because these people were still doing JSPs and jQuery for like their main production web app for the department I worked for. So it was like, yeah, this is revolutionary. So I brought over my knowledge and this is where I became, I made the, my biggest career mistake here. This is my biggest career mistake. They were really big on TDD at the healthcare company. And so I came in super hot about TDD when I went to Amex. I'm like, Look, we're building out this new infrastructure. This is the time to like automate all our builds, automate testing, you know, all this stuff. But the developers there were not doing testing. They were doing like manual testing themselves. And I'm like, that is like so brittle, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, you have to do the test. Like we have to write tests. So if somebody would submit a pull request, I would check the like code coverage. They'd be like, hey, none of the stuff that you submitted was, was covered. You got to do the test. And this one guy got super pissed. He's like, you tell me what I have to do, what I have to do, what I have to do. I don't have to do anything. And at that point, I realized I had already lost. Because when I had triggered this amount of anger in another, you know, a co-worker colleague, it was too late, right? We, I had already established my presence and who I was going to be seen as. And I spent from 27, 2015 to 20, almost 2018, trying to undo that. And it never worked. I was largely a pariah on my team where some people like me, but like the 
existing cohort of engineers largely did not. The influential, the influential engineers, you know, really didn't care for me. And, you know, that was just a missed opportunity because the guy who like yelled at me about like what he didn't have to do, he was a very talented engineer, like very talented, but we ended up in this like competition of sorts to try to one up the other person on every opportunity. He makes a point, I try to prove it wrong. I make a point, he tries to prove it wrong. I submit a pull request, he nitpicks the hell out of this thing. You know what I mean? Over every single thing. And then at the end, after he goes to quit, this is around uh, 2017, I haven't had my kids yet. Uh, 2017, he ends up quitting. And then he's super nice to me because we're no longer in competition. And I say, hey, what happened? Like, why couldn't we ever get along? He said, because you're a dick. And I said, you know, that's too bad. That's too bad because we could have done some really amazing things together. And I had the foresight to see the missed opportunity of what we could have created together. And the fact that I had created this perception that I was a dick, I'm just like, I don't think that, I, that I'm a dick, but that that is what I've created in this environment, right? I, I love this story for a couple of reasons. I, I'm, really, I'm really happy you shared that. Um, just two points to that. I remember in 2010 when TDD started becoming a thing and new developers coming into shops and trying to like tell me I was doing it wrong for the last 20 years because I wasn't doing this. I mean, I was looking at these kids like, you know what, when you got something in production, then you can come and talk to me, right? Like, leave me alone. Today, I, do, I don't believe in test-driven development, but I believe in test coverage for sure, right? I, I, I do it a different way. Uh, but back then, it was... Like, I don't have time to write tests. I have to build features. Now today, if anybody said that to me, I'd be like, smack, right? Like, I get it. Um, but the other thing that I see happening all the time is this. You, you know, you get a, a, a new developer, not new, they're senior developer. They walk into a new shop, and they start telling the team all the bad things they're doing. And I constantly have to say, stop. Do not do that, ever. Help them first. Your job over the next three months is not to complain about the code base. It's to help them achieve what they need to. And then suddenly you can start very slowly to show them how they can improve things. When until you show that you can help them win, you cannot come in and start to criticize. You just can't, right? And it's, again, another learned sort of skill, right? Which Today, you would approach that, you would do exactly kind of what I'm saying. Let's win, 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 win. Now we're three months in. Let's talk about how we can improve. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's not written down anywhere. So I'm glad we can have this conversation where someone can listen. Because if you're about to walk into a new shop and you consider yourself senior, that's when you really got to hold back in the beginning. And, and, and just, just be a team member and, and listen, yeah. Totally. You're right. I wish I just wish I had, had had that like maturity. You can't have it. You could not have it. It's like you're like, and this is the other thing I have to remind: don't beat yourself up over things that were necessarily impossible, right? Right. You learn. Right. You never make. You, you didn't make the mistake again. Then that's good. You're just not allowed to make. I tell my kids, you can make all the mistakes you want. You're not allowed to make the same mistake twice. That's it. Make a new mistake, but don't make the same mistake twice because now we're not learning. So what happens after Amex now? How long were you at Amex? So you're at Amex for like a year or two? I was like, I think I did another three years there because I, I left Amex in 2018. I joined in January of 2015. And then I left in 20, in like March of 2018. So 
Now, did you leave because you just felt like, okay, at this point it's enough in terms of culture and fit or another opportunity kind of presents itself? No, the, the job that would go on to change my life presented itself. I started teaching part-time at the universities through this company. So like different companies produce boot camps. There's this one company called Trilogy Education Services. They ended up getting acquired by 2U at some point, but they were, they were a startup and they, and they would go to like, let's say University of Florida and be like, hey, guess what? You don't have the bandwidth to open the coding bootcamp. We can help you do that. We'll even help you by providing like candidates for the instructors. We'll do everything so it's turnkey for you. It'll be your program. You have full say so over the curriculum. You know what I mean? How you want the curriculum, everything. But we just want to make it turnkey so that your school can compete with Lambda, you know, uh, General Assembly, all these places, which is brilliant. Because if you think about it, you're more likely to like, if, if you care about where people come from, what they learned, if you see someone has a Harvard coding bootcamp on their resume, you're probably going to think a little bit higher of that certificate than, than maybe an independent like coding bootcamp, depending on who you are as a hire, you know, hiring person. It's, it's funny you said this because a couple of weeks ago in the mail, the University of Miami sent me an email about a boot camp. I literally had to open it up because my brain said, is the University of Miami offering boot camps? And it was the same sort of thing. This company was partnering with UM to mm -hmm. kind of offer this. It wasn't necessarily UM, but it wasn't UM either. Like, yeah. So I'm starting to see, yeah, I saw that here with UM now. Interesting. But did you do this because you needed extra money or it was something you wanted to do? That's very insightful. I needed a ton of extra money because we were we were having infertility issues and we were trying to get pregnant. And IVF is very expensive. It's like $25,000 per like attempt. Yeah, I'm not intuitive, dude. Back when I had five kids and I wasn't making enough money, I started teaching vocational school at night to earn an extra like $1,000, $1,200 a month to pay bills. I had done that for like five years. It was a great way to make money at like 20 bucks an hour, you know, where you weren't shocking, you weren't stocking shelves. And right, right. Were, so I, 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 did, I did the exact same thing you did for like three or four years to make extra money. Yep, it was to make extra money. And then I just happened to be really good at teaching. I was so good that when I taught at Northwestern, I ended up getting awarded the, uh, this teaching award called the, hold on. I gotta remember what this thing is called. It's called the, Distinguished, so, so it's called the Distinguished Teaching Excellence Award. I won that from at teaching at Northwestern. Wow. So yeah, so I had to pull it out so I can remember that, that it was like real. But yeah, I won this award for teaching and that lit a fire under me to just like keep going. So I'm teaching part-time and then that company was like, if we can train a thousand marks, we'll be super successful. The students will have an incredible time because I, I ended up like kind of redefining what like the teaching process could be for these instructors who were like working at these universities for these boot camps. Because I brought in all of these like learning science techniques that most people who teach at higher levels just don't even know because you don't have to go to like any education school or get any education training to be a professor. You just need a PhD right? or a master's to teach at a lot of schools. But I'm going to interrupt you for a second. And you can have the material and you can have the techniques, right? 
But I think for me, and I think for a lot of people, it's the personality of the instructor that can turn any material into something interesting. I'm not saying you can't have good, solid material, but if you don't know how to teach it, it almost becomes irrelevant. So when I hear somebody say, let's get Mark to create a thousand more marks, I don't know if, I mean, my brain says, maybe you can find three dynamic people who have their own unique personality and we can teach them the material so they can teach it themselves. So when you hear somebody say, Mark, let's, let's try to make a thousand of you, like your brain, what, what are you thinking at that point? I'm thinking, okay, I would love to be the trainer who trains other people because I think this is a pretty, I mean, again, I think the idea of replicating what I brought to the classroom, I'm thinking about the students at that point. And I had to sit in other classes and I saw how they were teaching. And I was like, man, this is horrible for the students. If they, if the instructor just did this thing. So what it ends up becoming is like, they wanted me to come in full time to the startup and be like, okay, Mark, we want you to create the training program that'll teach other people, you know, like these, these, these techniques ended up being a horrible decision for me to go there. Cause one, it is really hard to train people cause they're going to do what they think is best. That's the first thing when they're in the classroom, even if they've seen what I've done in the rating and blah, 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 they don't care. They gonna do what they want to do. That's the first thing. And the second thing is like, I don't know how to do the job that they're asking me to do because I'm an engineer that just has good communication and teaching skills. So I end up kind of floating around in that company for like two years from 2018 to 2020, just kind of like my main value being because I'm still teaching part time as a part of my role. Right. And I'm full time doing this other thing, you know, like trying to become like the director of, ac of academic excellence or academic quality. And I'm a, got this director title, which looks good on my resume, but I'm not really doing like my best work because I don't really know how to do my best work in this context. And, you know, constantly getting like, man, your teaching is great, but when it comes to your director work, you know, I think we can improve it. It's okay. We can improve. We can improve. Then they hired somebody to actually do the thing that they hired me to do. And that person actually knew how to do it. So then here I am kind of displaced because I'm not doing anything and what they should have done, they should have let me go. Like they should just like ended my, my work there because you can have the right person for the company in the wrong role, the right person for the company, right role, wrong person, right role, right? You can have those combinations. I was the right person for the company because I embodied what they wanted in terms of like the student led success in the classroom, but I was in the wrong role. So they should have put me in a different role or just let me go. Yeah. Wow. I, I think you and I would have, I, I think I would have probably had the same experience you had. Uh, I'm, and when we bring trainers in at Arden, I'm always like, I want you to bring your own material in. I don't want you teaching my material. You're passionate about your material. And I want to feel entertained in the classroom. If, if, if you can't do that, um, and I don't know how to teach it. I don't know how to teach it. So I don't know, but that's me, right? Like, Unless you're intimate with the material, it's you're not you're just going to read from the book at the end of the day, right? Right. So if they brought in a director just to define procedure and policy, that's fine. But in the classroom, <laughs> it's you and the students. Like, I don't know how you, I don't know how you you you'd manage that. I made videos and I did like ESPN style analysis 
where I like freeze frame, like notice here, Mark is raising his left hand to signal to the students that he wants his attention. Like I'm trying to teach them, like I was doing videos like that, but who's gonna watch all these videos? Like <laughs> Anyway, so that just ended up not being great. Then they put me on an engineering team finally. And then one of the guys is like, we gotta get Mark off the team because they put me on something that I didn't know how to do, but didn't give me any time to like learn it. It was like, do the Salesforce programming. I'm like, I don't know anything and nobody has time to explain the product to me because you all are under a super tight deadline. And then they, they were like, oh, he's bringing down a team. And then I was just frustrated. And then something magical happens. Um, this whole time in my part-time to find fulfillment, I'm trying to build my own startup, like a fitness company, right? Like a fitness app. So I'm working on this fitness app and I use this technology called Flutter, which is like super popular for mobile development. That work ends up getting me like, pretty popular in the Flutter community. And then I get the attention of Google, right? Some Google people find me and they're like, they love it. People who, you know, champion their products, right? Especially when a nascent product like Flutter was in 2018. Yeah, 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 yeah. Somebody had written a book and suddenly I'm, I was seeing videos everywhere and Google was pretty much pushing it hard. And I started, and I don't do front end dev, but I started saying it work. You know, we're doing, you know, Objective-C for iPhone apps. We've got no Android apps. We should start looking at Flutter, right? I even bought the book and never did it with it. So, yeah, I'm, it's really interesting that you got into Flutter development. Did you really enjoy Flutter? Because the few people that I met that were looking at it constantly, and I don't know if this is true or not, right? Like, I think there's bias there. But they were always like, no, I can't do what I want to do in Flutter, or it's too hard in Flutter, or it's not. Did you, did, were you experiencing that at all? Especially you came from an Angular background, so you knew front end. Right. So Flutter was the first time I could ever deliver what the designer handed me. That was my experience. Because, you know, as a, as a developer engineer, you know that the designer makes this beautiful UI, and the first thing our brains do is, can't do that animation. Oh, this little, you know, Bezier curve, we're going to smooth that right out. You're going to lose that curve. You know what I mean? We start like approximating the UI to be what we think is possible with the tools that we have. Flutter allowed me to go past that and say, oh, you want that fancy animation when you click this drop down? Flutter makes it, makes it super possible to do that. And guess what? I can write it once and not have to do it again someplace else. Yeah. You had a programming language. You had a programming language behind it, right? Like Dart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But you were doing this on your own. You were doing this on the side to build a, to build this fitness app that you wanted to build. And I think your attitude with, we can make that happen, has to help here. Because if you don't have that attitude while you're learning Flutter, your brain just says, no, we can't do that anyway. But I imagine your brain, let, let, let's see if we can make that happen instead of already being defeated, right? Right, right, right. And I, you know, end up meeting some Flutter people like uh, community members that, you know, I still talk to today. And then they, Google was like, hey, we have this contest, to, you know, if we have a, an event and we want you to submit your videos for it. So I was like, oh, this is gonna be so much fun. So I submit a video that they use for the opening keynote, like as a part of the intro to the opening keynote. And my video was like the last thing you see before Tim Sneath, which is uh, super high up uh, at Google working on Flutter, before he goes on, right? My video's there. Then they do it again for this next event, but here's the difference. They invited me to come to the event along with other prominent community members. And then 
my second video plays in the room with all these Googlers and Flutter community. And I'm in the room and I had no idea they were going to use it because they don't tell you. And then it's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing experience. While you're building this app in Flutter on the side to solve a this product that you want to build, not solve a problem, well, solve a problem, right? This new product. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It sounds like that you're also teaching kind of, so you're, you're blogging and doing videos on the side about what you're learning. You kind of skipped over that, right? For, for Google to have found this video, I guess you've de you decided that, okay, I'm also gonna fulfill my passion for teaching. So you start building videos, teaching people how to use Flutter at the same time, is that what's happening here? Oh, no, no, no. This video was a specific call to action that Google had put out for it to the Flutter community. Oh, just, it was a general, general call to action that you saw and you decided, oh, you know what, I'm gonna put a video together. And, and they, they picked it up and they loved it. Right, right. And I was tweeting about my entire experience building my app and my company. I was like, I'm gonna build an app in 30 days with Flutter and I wanna deploy it to the app store. And I tweeted through that whole story. And that was another way where I started to get on the radar of some like people from Google and Flutter was through that. But the company you're working at, I guess maybe they're not socially tech savvy. So they don't know all this, is all this stuff's happening on the side. Yeah, and my name on Twitter is Mark Texan. So unless I use that name in public, how do you know that that's me? Were you not using a picture of yourself? Is that not? Oh, I was. So it's interesting that they never like found. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder how come nobody ever, or maybe they did know, they just didn't care, right? It could be that. Maybe they did know and they just like, eh, you know, he's hanging on by a thread here. Who cares? Let him have this one. <laughs> so then what happens? You, you have this, Google invites you, you're, they're, they're playing your stuff. They're really excited about your ability to, to share your Flutter experience. You're not happy at work. So what happens next? I start interviewing at different companies. For Flutter specifically, is that what you wanted to do? Nope, just to get out, to get back to engineering. So I was interviewing places like Spot Hero, some health, some more healthcare companies because I knew that space. So I started interviewing places. But was it, again, I don't care what I'm doing or did you want to stay front end Angular? Were you looking at? Oh, no, it was front end specifically because I was teaching React at the coding bootcamp. So I was like, I can do React now because I've been teaching it for the last like two and a half years on and off, you know, through these cohorts. So it's like JavaScript, you know, I could even do some full stack if you want, because I'm, I know Node at this point, still no Java. So I'm applying to some front, but primarily front end, either Angular or React jobs. Flutter jobs just weren't as popular at this point because Flutter was still alpha, right? And so I'm just like, all right, I'm gonna do this stuff. I totally blew an interview at Spot Hero because they gave me like this full stack React app. And I didn't know part of the like stack that they wanted me to use. So I taught myself to stack as I was building the app. But because I spent so much time doing that and I taught myself Cypress because I didn't know Cypress to do the test coverage, I forgot to connect the API call to the REST endpoint. And when everything else was perfect. And then they were just like, yeah, he wants to be a senior and nah, he, that's too big of a mistake for us to be able to move forward. And I was like, all right, you know what I mean? I, I feel that. The interview process is broken, but we could talk about that for three hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And then I end up getting 
into this one company called Riley Health and they like interview me. I nail the interviews, you know, and then they make an, or so I start nailing the interviews. But what happens at the same time, parallel to this, a friend of mine who I taught with forwarded my email address to a Google recruiter. And this Google recruiter was just like, hey, we're looking for somebody to be like the head of DevRel for Flutter. And I'm like, Flutter? It signed me up because I was so like in love with the community and with the tool. Sign me up. And so I'm doing the Rally Health process and the Google process at the same time. What it, was your head when you said sign me up? Like this is a 50% chance, 5% chance. This is a, where was your head at the time when you said fine? I'll... If they answer, so if, if they would talk to me, I can convince them that I can do this job. That's where my head was. Like, just talk to me. If you just would talk to me, I can convince you that I can do this job. And they did talk to me. And, that, and I did not convince them that I could be the head of Flutter. <laughs> <laughs> because Google is a weird place where the head of a company is just not like a fancy manager. So the head of an org or a department is not like a fancy manager with more reports. There are much different experiences and things that they want from you that I just had not had the experience with yet. And it would have been setting me up for failure, to be honest with you, to give me that job. So do they just say, no, thank you? Or do they say, but maybe we've got something else here for you? That's right. That's right. He's, I remember the guy told me, he's like, you're not a fit for this, but would you consider interviewing for like a regular DevRel position? And I'm like, yes, I would totally do this. Because here's, here's the goal. I talked to my wife about this because it's a big process to interview for Google, all the prep you have to do. I said, you know what, we're going to do this. And I said, we, because they required her to sacrifice for me to interview here because I would have to be studying so much at night. You see what I'm saying? So I wouldn't be available. And I was like, so we can do this knowing that I do it in 2020. I'll interview. I'll learn what I, what I'm, what I need to work on. So in 2021, I can come back and do better. So you didn't interview right away. You went off to study. No, I interviewed. I just expected to fail. Oh, Okay. Because the Google phone screen is notoriously challenging. And if you get past that, the Google full day is a gauntlet. I've heard. I heard it can take months. I've heard it's, it's months of interviewing. And then somebody makes a final decision at some point, right? So, yeah, no, I get it. So, so talk about that. So you decide that you're going to now interview for this other position. And that starts right away. So, but you're still at this other job. I guess you're not taking anything else while you know this is going to take weeks, if not months. So you're just mm -hmm. going to kind of stay where you are and you want to play this one out. So you said no to the other. So do you say no to the other offer and you just stop interviewing altogether? No, because, because when Rally came around, I was only a few, maybe a few weeks into my Google interview process. I can't remember which one came first, but they're around the same time. And I just kept the process moving with Rally. And then I was like studying every night for two hours for Google, like every single night. Like I put my son to bed. What were you studying? You were what, what, I, I, just two minutes. What, what were you what were you focused on in your studies um, for this DevRel position? Good question. Good question. Nothing for DevRel. Nothing for DevRel because the DevRel interview process, the only difference is that when you do your, your final round, you have a 30 minute presentation round, but everything else is just like a software engineer interview for the most part. 
So I wasn't spending any time really on DevRel. I was studying algorithms and data structures and specifically I was learning how to do it within 30 minutes because what you have is like, you have 30 minutes of questions before where in this case, the questions were DevRel. I will say that. But then the challenge problem was just like a sweet software engineer challenge problem. So you have 30 minutes. Your best bet is to do your first 10 to 15, get all your questions answered and get a brute force solution that works. So my goal was to, I was really pushing myself to do that part of the story where I was trying to get to that 15 minute solution, even if it was like super slow. Using Java, is that the language you chose to? You can use anything. Structure? No, but I'm wondering what language you chose. Oh, your... I just use JavaScript. JavaScript, okay. All right, we got like 10 minutes left. So I just wanna get the rest of the story in. So you are still interviewing at the other place while you're going through the Google interview. We know this is going to take months. The other one's going to take a week, maybe. So I imagine they offer you a position. What do you do? What do you do? I accept because Google's not going to happen. So why would you not accept this? Like it was a nice salary. It was like a little bit over mid six figures, you know, good benefits because it was healthcare related. I'm like, I will be happy here or I'll make myself happy here because this will be best for my family. Cause at this point I have a kid, you know what I mean? It's not just my wife and I anymore. And I'm like, yeah, I will make myself, I'll be happy here. It's fine. And besides, you know, Google's not going to happen, you know, make your expectations reasonable, you know, and next year when you go for Google, you have spent a year at rally. So it won't really matter. No, makes sense. I think once you have a kid, uh, bringing home enough money to support everybody makes you happy, even if you're somewhat miserable. And at this point anyway, with your resume, if it's really that bad, you can just be proactive and look for something else. So, so yeah, that makes sense. So then how long does, you're obviously at Google now, right? We know that. So how long does this entire process take now after you start this new job? First email was in March last or the final acceptance date was in like June or something like that. So it was like three months. Let me ask you a question on the DevRel side, because mm -hmm. with the last like eight minutes here that we have, I see a lot of people who come out of university that don't have a lot of experience jump into DevRel positions at other companies. And I always feel like it's a huge mistake because if you have a DevRel on stage that has no experience, I think it's really hard to listen to them. You, the DevRel position should be someone who has the industry experience, at least in that tech, where if you're saying something, I should listen uh, because it's coming, it's coming from that place of wisdom and experience. And I kind of do DevRel for Arden in a sense, even though you know, I don't have that title. But what I worry about, because I don't work on projects, is I have to create my own projects to make sure I'm staying relevant in what people are doing in industry, and then I'm giving them the right code and tools for industry. Um, again, or if not, you shouldn't be listening to me. I, I try to take small projects at least once a year, two or three month projects to, to do that. So my question to you is, do you have those same fears that in a DevRel situation where you're not working on projects, that you're gonna become technically irrelevant to the people you're talking to and then what are you doing to stay relevant in this role um, as well? That's a great question. So 
there, Dev Role is such a huge space. And Dev Role can mean community management. Dev Role can mean so much now versus the Dev Evangelists of like our time when they first started appearing on the scenes where highly technical people talking about this technical product. And now there's just a really wide space. So for me, what's really important is that I can authentically support the community that I'm being a DevRel engineer for. And at Google, you know, it's Angular, right? I like to stay sharp by one. I want to always, like I study, to be honest with you, I just study Angular, right? Because I want to understand, because there's lots of Angular community members who are expert level that are far beyond my knowledge because I joined with no experience in like Angular, not AngularJS is a different product completely, right? And so I don't pretend to be an expert, but I do like really try to understand Angular itself and how I can best support the product internally and then how I can best support the community externally. And I, you have to study for that. And then I, I pay attention to what everyone else is doing. Like I know that people love Svelte and then they love Vue and they love React. Like I know what people are using and then I'm trying to understand why people are using those things just so I can know what's happening that I can stay relevant because you you really can't do DevRel. So DevRel for us, especially at Google, is not all talks, right? And just podcasts. Like that is so, that's such a small part of my job of what I actually do as a DevRel engineer at Google. Such a small part. Like I do maybe one talk a month right now, but I spend a lot of time working on strategy documents about how we can support the community. I spend a lot of time working on reviewing upcoming changes to the framework and trying to understand how that's going to impact everybody. You see what I'm saying? Like there's just so much more to being DevRel at Google than it is like being like a social media influencer, which is not the same thing as DevRel. Like that, those may overlap, but that is not necessarily because there are some pretty brilliant DevRel people that you may have never even heard of because they don't do videos and talks. Interesting. Are you doing, you know, I learned, I learned a lot from Kelsey, watching Kelsey kind of in that role too. And one of the things that I learned from Kelsey and the, and COVID hit, so I'm not, you know, I'm really able to do it too much more anymore is if I was on the ground, let's say in San Francisco, I would reach out to private business and say, I'm in town. Would you like to talk? Do you want to have these conversations? That to me was a really big part of, of being part of the community. It wasn't just being on stage. It was, hey, I'm in town. Let's talk if you want to talk. If you want me to give an internal talk, I will. But I'm here for anything, right? Like, and I, I, you know, I kind of learned that idea from Kelsey. Kelsey would be showing up and, hey, Kelsey, you want to grab a drink? I can. I got to go. I got to go here. I got to go there. I'm like, oh, man, that's interesting, right? Especially for you with your big, big cloud customers. I imagine that you're also involved in supporting your biggest clients too, right? I mean, that's a big part of the job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, part of our team does definitely do that. And I, I love Kelsey's example because I actually met, met with Kelsey when I was here for only like three months. And he just gave me some brilliant advice. He was like, you know, there's obvious DevRel and then there's another side of DevRel that you can think about where you drive value. And then I was like, oh, what? You mean I don't, I shouldn't just make videos and write blogs and like that be my DevRel contribution? He's like, you can do that, that's fine. But that's kind of like the standard, that's what everybody does. What can you do that's different than that to drive value to your customers? And I'm like, damn, that's like, that's hard. 
Because now I got to think, right? Like I got to think about this and I have to be intentional. And that's why I tell you now, it's like, that's why so little of my job is like only videos or only blogs. Like I'm trying to solve that problem for our customers now. How can we drive value to the community? How can we drive value to the customers? Like how can we make Angular the best place to build web apps? And I think about that all the time. I don't know the answer yet, but I do believe that for, look, there's no solution for everybody. We already know that, but I am always thinking about how do we make Angular the best place to build web apps for those people where it is a good fit for them, right? How do we get there? And that type of thinking is what drives me to do different initiatives. But I think there's one more piece here, Mark. And I, back in the day when DevRel was just about being on stage, I used to ask, ask these people, I go, I go, what's your job in terms of revenue at your company? And they'd be like, oh, no, I'm not responsible for revenue. I said, stop. Your salary is coming from revenue. And nobody gets a salary for free. So the only reason they're supporting you to be on stage is because they think they're going to be able to generate revenue from you being here. So what is it that you're doing to help generate revenue? And every time somebody would say, that's not my job or I don't know, I'd be like, you know, that's, the reality of that is not, it, it's not true. You're there to help. And from a, from a, we're in the cloud wars, I say it all the time, right? Everybody's job is to grow cloud. That's where the money is, right? Right, right, And so right. for me, the other thing also is either you're there to protect revenue in terms of supporting clients or help grow revenue in terms of bringing more clients in, right? And I just don't, if you're looking at these roles, I think, like, too many people lose sight of that. I don't know. Well, I think if you want to be productive to the point where you want like a lot of career productivity, you think about that until you get the answer, right? Like you don't have to know it when you first join, but you, you, you shouldn't lose sight of that because I'm always thinking about like our other products at Google, what integrations could drive value there? Because because Angular is open source, we can't like make money from it, right? But is there a Firebase integration? Right, that makes a lot of sense. That serves a community and drives value. That then can increase Firebase adoption. What about Google Cloud? Does it make sense to like deploy Angular to like a cloud instance or something? Right, like all those things are things that I'm working toward in my mind. Like, okay, how do I? Where it's not just cheesy. Like, hey, you know, pull in your your data with Firebase and Angular. Like a thousand people do that. A thousand people do that. Build a secure, scalable application with Firebase and Angular. That's a different story. I mean, to this day, I still think Google has the best Kubernetes experience, hands down, right, from what I've seen. Like, if you're starting out and you want to use Kubernetes to deploy your apps, like, you seriously have to look at GKE. It's just, there's so much there for you, right? Um, and so when you're on stage showing stuff like that and you're actually building apps, I, I love, my favorite presentation is when somebody's writing code on stage, even if it's small, and then going through that whole process. Like, there's no magic here. I didn't preset this up. Let's just do it. Right. right. And, and that's, that sells. That sells. We're, this is not a joke. Like, look what I just did in the last hour. You know, and maybe this isn't production-oriented code just yet, but if it was, you know, look what you can do. We got the groundwork laid out for you. We, you can see it, right? You can see what's possible. So how are you loving this, this role you're in now? You've been there for, uh, since what, July? You've been there for what, a year now or almost a year? Two years in June. Yeah. 
Brilliant. All right, we are we're really just out of time, but I want to ask the one question: what what kind of what have you really learned? Like the growth of the last two years being at Google in this role. Do you still love this role? Or are you still are you reinventing it? I just want to get this last kind of final thought from you from from where you kind of started, right? It was this this great story, kind of where you are now. And I'm also kind of curious what your family thinks about you being at Google because. When people first get hired at Google and they were my, you know, they're friends of mine and they walk into a room, I'm like, Google just walked in. And they're like, no, Bill. I said, stop. Google just walked in the room, right? And you kind of sometimes forget that. Uh, it's a big deal working at Google. So I'm kind of, last two things here. Um, just, I'd love to hear from you what you kind of learned over the last two years in this role, um, what you're not doing anymore, kind of that. So people looking at this role can kind of get a sense of that. And then I'd love to kind of just circle back to your family and get a sense of um, what they think and say about Mark now that he's at Google. Okay, so the thing that I'm not doing more of what I've learned. So first, this is the best job I've ever had because it's allowed me to combine my engineering skills and my communication and teaching skills in the best way possible. So it's the best job I've ever had. I really love it. Uh, what have I learned? You know, I've learned the difference between doing a lot and adding value and being strategic and adding value. That's the thing. So you can be really busy here at Google and just do a bunch of stuff, but they really like you to think about impact. Like what's the impact of the efforts that you're doing? And that is a mindset shift when you come from other companies where they measure how many projects you cleared in a year. And like, man, I, I closed 67, you know, like uh, sprint tickets. You know what I mean? Like my average pace is this, that, and the other. So all that stuff's really important. Other places here is more like I did one project and we reached 375,000 developers, right? That's just a way different way to think about your work. But I still struggle with the productivity of like the number of things I can do in a year versus that thing. And you know, and I'm learning it. So we we have our like annual rating system and I got like a strongly exceeds expectations at a senior level at Google. And for me, that's just like, it's special to me because one, it's hard to get that rating. And two, I didn't think that I could get in. So getting in and then having that is great. And, you know, really just validates that I'm in the right place. And finally, with my family though, my wife is incredibly happy and proud that I get to work here and that I'm so that I'm so happy. It makes her happy because I'm so happy. So we're happier because I'm not complaining about work all the time. And my extended family, everybody thinks I'm like a rich, like genius because I work at Google. Neither are true. Neither are true. But that's that's how they see me now. They're like because my one cousin was like, oh, you you a millionaire now, huh? And I was like, I just started at Google and I live in California now. So the chances of becoming a millionaire immediately are diminished quite a bit. Um, so I have, to, I have to kind of deal with that perception, but like people really do see me when they found out I work at Google. Less here, when I was in Chicago, it was kind of a big deal. Whenever I walked in, it's like, you work at Google? Oh my gosh, you must be so smart. Here, because everybody works at like big tech in California, like in Northern California, people are like, oh, it's a Googler. I work for SpaceX or I work for Meta. I work for, you know, blah, 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 name the big tech company. I work at Netflix. You know what I mean? So it's, I'm not as much of a celebrity here as I am, like in other places. You know, it's why I love living in Miami, because the tech scene's pretty scarce, even though crypto and Bitcoin is all over the place now. But, you know, I go to San Francisco and you couldn't sit down anywhere and have somebody talk about 
programming or computers. It would drive me crazy after two days. I, mm. I could come to Miami and escape it. Um, so I kind of feel you, right? You go to Chicago, it's, it's still like a novelty. And you can escape the tech if you don't want to be around it. You can't San Francisco. It's everywhere. All right. We are way out of time here, but I, I didn't want to cut this story short. It was an amazing story, and I can't thank you enough for sharing all that with us. Um, Mark, if anybody wants to reach out to you after listening to this, just to talk to you about anything they've heard, what is the best way for people to reach out to you? Find me on Twitter at Mark Texan. That's M-A-R-K-T-E-C-H-S-O-N. Um, I love to support people. I am a helper. So if you just got questions that can be helpful to you, let me know. All right. And we'll get that into the show notes. So this is Bill Kennedy and Mark Thompson signing off. And thank you for listening to us and hope to see everybody again real soon. <laughs>